never put all of your eggs into one basket. So probably one advice to brands that I give out there is don't only focus on one marketing channel. It's super important to diversify traffic channels because we've seen it working for us. We've seen it working for clients. I've seen it working for friends. I think diversification is super important. So yeah, never put all of your eggs into one basket. Hello, my name is Lauren D'Souza and you're listening to Retain, the Customer Retention Podcast. More and more companies are wanting to focus on retaining customers, but what exactly are the powers of customer retention? And how are companies using it to keep their customers coming back for more? That's what we're here to find out. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've been enjoying the content that we've been providing, and it's going to get even better with today because we have a lovely guest with us. Jem Burrow is a serial entrepreneur from Germany. With his Google Ads agency, Adcubator, Jem and his team have spent more than $300 million profitably. After being in the D2C space for more than four years and bootstrapping his own e-commerce brands, he's decided to invest and acquire other businesses such as marketing agencies and e-commerce brands. Jem, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, so why don't we just kick it off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. So as you mentioned, Jem, Jem Boro, born and raised in Germany, moved out from my hometown when I was 18, stumbled across making money on the internet pretty much before, but just got started in December 2017 when I was in uni, successfully dropped out, moved to Dubai last year, based in Bali. Right now, what I started off with was e-com, dropshipping, of course, getting into the media buying space, getting into Google ads, getting into paid advertising, essentially Facebook ads, all that kind of stuff. Ran my first TikTok ads in November, 2020, and my first Snapchat ads, November, 2020. So kind of an early adopter on these things. But what I do on a daily basis right now, pretty much running my business is my, my media buying agency, Adcubator, pretty much my full stack Google ads agency. We do anything from search, YouTube, you know, the, the whole deal, running my own e-com brands, I was running an education company, just split from my partner on good terms, thankfully, <laughs> so to run the business. But we had a good run, made good seven figures in the first year of running an education business. And that was something different because building the entire sales team, building an appointment setters team, I mean, the education space is just so different from e-commerce. So that was interesting. Started to do some keynotes this year. I think I've done like 10 or 11 or 12 all around the world from from Barcelona to Dubai, to Singapore, to Hamburg, to Frankfurt. That's awesome. Yeah, pr- pretty much all around the world. Miami too as well. So yeah, that's that's what I do. As I was going to say, you mentioned two of my very favorite places, which is Barcelona and Bali. Those were some of the best trips I've ever taken. So cool to know that. <laughs> yeah, lovely. I'm actually going back to Barcelona in in June to visit a friend of mine. He invited me to his wedding. So super excited for that because he got me started the entire public speaking thing. I had my first keynote at his event, Geek Out. So yeah. Wow. Full circle. I love that. <laughs> so why don't you tell me a little bit more about Adcubator and actually, so I know you said you started running ads in 2020 and you switched very majorly between industries of ed tech to the e-commerce like ad space. What made you interested in it? How did you get involved in it? Meaning like what just piqued your interest about getting involved in the ad space? Yeah. So when I got first started in, in December 2017 with Ecom with dropshipping, like everyone, you know, everyone is just trying to figure it out and not knowing what they're doing. Just start watching all of these YouTube tutorials, all of these teenagers making 40, 60K a month in revenue. Like, damn, 
you know, what are they doing different than, than I am? And they have more money, more capital, but at the end of the day, they were working harder and they were actually, you know, working on a business, not like some get rich quick scheme. So, you know, looking back, I was able to sell that store for $250, made me $250 in profit, which back then was like 236 euros, I think that I made in profit. So overall I was profitable. I was like, damn, this making money online thing actually works. So looking back, I was like, okay, what is the main difference? Cause I was buying fake traffic on Fiverr. I was buying influencer shout outs from fake pages that were just buying followers and everything. And I mean, getting started and not knowing what you're doing is I think better than overcomplicating it and trying to be super perfectionistic about it. Absolutely. If you're going to be that guy or that kind of person, you're not going to get started because you're always, oh, it needs to be perfect. It needs to be perfect. Like just get started. Right. So when I realized that I was like, okay, so what are these people doing different? They're actually buying media on some platforms, right? And this is when I started digging to Google ads. I found a super interesting thread on, I think, Black Hat World, it was, where someone was kind of like documenting his journey. Okay, I know Google ads and I don't have any clients and I want to make 10K by the end of the month. And then he documented this entire journey. Like, oh, I got this client, I got this client, I got this client, I got wow. this client from here, this client from here. Like super transparent, right? And I was like, man, like, I can do that as well. So I started getting into Google ads, not knowing anything about Google ads, but doing lead generation for dentists back in 2018 and in August. Interesting. Like when the entire media buying journey started. And then I had a few e-com clients and it was profitable. And I was like, okay. And again, we're talking about the full circle here, right? So I was, okay, I did e-com. I was successful. Now I know how to do media buying. So why can I figure out this e-com stuff again? And that's when I kind of went back to e-com end of 2018. And so in that time, obviously you've been there for about, I guess, four years now. What do you see as, we'll look at the past and the future. So in the e-commerce space from 2018 to 2022, obviously you're seeing a lot of different trends and things changing because you're in the ad buying space. So what have you seen changed a lot over the past four years? And then the second part to that is, what do you see changing in 2023? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think back then running Facebook ads, running Google ads was the simplest thing because back then, I mean, people were already on it and buying media but it wasn't the way we have it right now because more and more people are getting into it. The CPMs are rising because more people are competing in the ad space. So advertising is getting more expensive. And this is why some brands that are not bootstrap, but like RVC back there, like, okay, instead of focusing on, on customer acquisition costs, we'll just look at the ratio from LTV to customer acquisition costs. So we're not going to be profitable first purchase, but we're going to be profitable on the second purchase maybe, right? And, and they look at the cohorts and everything. And in my opinion, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you even bother running a brand that is not profitable first purchase? Like, to me, it makes sense. Of course, it's if you're Gillette, of course, it's a different thing because you have the hook model, you have the product, they have to keep buying, 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 buying. But unless you have a subscription like that, unless you you are solving a mass appeal problem, to me, it doesn't make sense because why, why would you bother not being profitable first purchase, right? So back then, it was really easy. People started to develop all of these methodologies, all of these strategies on how to do media buying. It was really up until 2020 where I really realized like, hey, it's not about, especially if we're talking about Facebook, it's not about the strategy that you have in place, but it's about the creatives that you have in place. Because what does the targeting on Facebook? It's not going to be the interest because at the end of the day, the, the pixel is just a snippet, just a piece of data, like a code that is transporting data from A to B. So what's going to happen if you have a good creative, the creative is doing all of the targeting. Because if we see an interesting video on Instagram, if we see an ad, if we see an influencer post a story, what's going to happen is we're stopping 
and we're actually taking into consideration like, hey, this is actually maybe solving my problem, right? We're looking at the hook that they have. It makes us stop. And we're continuing to watch the video. So at the end of the day, the video is really qualifying the consumer that has to purchase at the end of the day. And back then, it, it, it kind of was all about strategies and everything. And I think this is kind of the switch that has happened throughout the past few years, that it's gotten really intricate with these creatives. And, and of course, if we're talking about UGC, AGC, user-generated content, that it's really like, how can we do all of these creative iterations? How can we not only look at on-site metrics, such as conversion rate, such as AOV, but also the offsite metrics, such as the unique outbound CTR, for example, or the hook ratio, the thumb stop ratio. No, it's a great point, actually, because even just what you were mentioning about two things to do with the metrics that people are looking at and how they use those to invest in the ads when they're buying them, figuring out like their next strategy, especially when you just mentioned now of the like the LTV to cost to acquire a customer. Do companies ever come to you and say like, we need ads as part of our retention strategy? Or how do you see people balance like buying of ads and they're figuring out their retention strategy? I know it might be a big question, but it's more so how do the two balance each other out or how do people think about that? And how will this trends in 2023 kind of affect that? Because I feel like something like UGC is really gaining traction now and companies will have to figure out like how do they put more organic and more creative and more less transactional things within all their marketing aspects. So what do you think about like the whole ads to retention side of things? I mean, first of all, we really have to talk about what the what the potential client or who the, who the customer is that we're talking about, right? If we're going to talk about bootstrap, like at the end of the day, they only have a limited amount of, of money. They only have a limited amount of capital and cash flow. So they're really limited to being profitable first purchase because if they're scaling too fast, if they don't have the financial projections and all the trajectory right, they're going to, well, be negative at the end of the month and have to wait to actually scale and it's going to ruin their whole, whole business, right? Whereas if you're VC backed, what the VCs want to see is just growth, 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 because if you're not growing unprofitably, you're not growing fast enough, right? And we have both kind of clients. We are working with bootstrap people and we're working with people who have VC backgrounds, such as like Series B, 80 million, 100 million. Like we've, we've worked with these people and we're still working with these people. And what's super important is if we're talking about the first purchase and being profitable, many brands, and I mean, you've, you've kind of just mentioned it, have a retention strategy in place, which is super important, right? But here's the thing. If we're talking about first purchase and retention, they should be kind of balancing each other out, right? Because if you have too many retention customers, you're not going to be scaling, well, smart. Because if you're only focused on retention, you're not spending enough money on ads, right? So the retention that I like to look at for my own brands is about like 30, 35%. Because I know, okay, I have, I have repeat purchases, I re repeat customers, but I'm still acquiring enough customers to grow the brand. Because at the end of the day, if you have a, a repeat purchase rate of 60, 70, 80%, like, what are you focusing on? The people who are already buying your brand. And especially if we're in DTC and talking about DTC, it doesn't make any sense. So there has to be a balance between first purchase and, and retention. That's interesting. And so on that point alone, because actually some of our previous guests that we've had on the show... We solely, solely, solely focus on retention. And it's because obviously we're a retention podcast. But it's interesting to see this different point of view because I had also been chatting with like marketing agencies and people who are all in the space, but just from kind of different perspectives. And I was just recently chatting with this one agency based in Australia, and they were basically saying that, yes, retention is great. But just like you said, it's good to have a balance of investing in the ads to grow the acquisition side. But you also need to think about the retention, meaning 
you can't just be 100% towards one or the other. It actually has to be a good split or like you just had like 70-30 kind of thing between ads to retention. And so when you see a brand that comes to you and is so focused on the retention or so focused on the ads, how do you help them balance that out, would you say? I would tell them to spend more money on ads. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and then, quite honestly, that's the first thing. If they're not spending enough money on ads and I don't see enough data that basically tells me based based on well the auditing of the brand or the ad account that tells me it's not really scalable because there's two different scenarios right on the one hand the numbers are if i may say so and it doesn't make any current setup to scale the current creatives and whatnot or it's they could be spending more but they're not spending more because they're like oh we have 80 percent repeat customers which again doesn't make any sense so the first advice i would give spend more money look at your data if the data is profitable why aren't you spending more because you can spend more and of course spending more money of course most likely leads to more revenue and more revenue doesn't necessarily mean more profit so how can we optimize the ads and the creatives and do creative iteration and work on the back end and and of course do some conversion rate optimization on the side to increase the revenue per user to scale and not only increase the revenue but also the profit. Because I'm not saying we need to keep the same profit margin. Let's say a business is making 40% profit margin. I'm not saying it needs to stay at 40% because it could go down to 30. But at the end of the day, if the profit is higher, after all chargebacks, after all refunds, after faulty products and all that kind of stuff, then of course it makes sense to scale and spend more money on ads. No, that's a great point. And I think it's interesting because obviously companies, whether they're VC backed or they're bootstrapping, Obviously, two very different profiles, but at the end of the day, everyone's trying to figure out how do you almost get that flywheel turning of figuring out your acquisition, your retention, your operation, making sure everything kind of comes together. So it's a good point that you make, and it's interesting to think about. Do you have any examples off the top of your mind of companies that balance that really well? We're talking about other brands. I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but I feel like brands in the in the CPG space, so consumer packaged goods. So something like Mudwater, maybe something like Avi, maybe because they're acquiring new customers and it's a mass appeal market because college is something pretty much everyone in the world could take or like a, a mushroom water or whatever it is, a mushroom supplement. Because again, it's mass appeal. I'm not too sure. So I'm not trying to make a statement like, oh, they're yeah, doing yeah. it really well. <laughs> of I can imagine they're doing it really well. No, that's totally fair. And I think that's why actually I, I always ask that question on the show because it's interesting just to see someone's point of view because obviously you're doing this day in, day out. You obviously know what you're looking for. You know what success looks like. So I'm always curious to know what like those indicators are for you and other companies obviously that you're not working with on a daily basis. So really interesting. But in terms of going back to like e-commerce companies, I guess more so on the bootstrap side, I would say, because even for us for at Gameball, a lot of our customers are more on the like smaller to medium size enterprises, I would say. We definitely have a mix as well, but I would say it's more on that smaller to medium side. What would you say are some effective retention strategies for these kind of companies? Here's the thing. If if we're talking about retention, what's important is you can only retain a customer if you have their data, such as email, phone number. And in my opinion, the more the better. Because if you're in the US, well, of course, you should do email marketing. You should have a community. You should have, such as Game Ball, some collecting points and, and kind of like gamifying the entire thing, you know, because of course, if you're gamifying, people are more obliged to purchase. And I feel like it's it's important that you're not stretching too thin 
because email marketing is is one thing. You have the flows there in place. You might be making 15% just on the flows, 10, 15, 20%, whatever it is. Totally depends on the brand. I should have campaigns being sent out on a weekly basis, two, three, four emails. I'm not an expert in email marketing, so we do three on a weekly basis. If you're in the US, of course, you should do SMS marketing. In Europe, what's super interesting right now is WhatsApp marketing is starting to be super popular. Very little people do it, but the brands that I know that are doing it are crushing it with it. And I've heard that few brands have done six-figure revenue just on Black Friday with WhatsApp, which is... What? <laughs> yeah, because if you think about it on email, what is the what is the average open rate? Like 30% or something? 30, 40%? I thought it was actually going to be less than that. On WhatsApp. Checking our phone every day. So if we're getting a WhatsApp message from a brand, like, of course, we're going to open it. And the likeliness of us purchasing is way higher than from an email. And so do you think they've got like the frequency, the content, all of that is easier with like through WhatsApp? Or is there any like secret sauce under that? I'm curious to know like what that open rate or how that open rate happens to be so high. I feel like it's the same. The only difference between email and, and, and WhatsApp is like the open rate is just so high because we're... Who are you going to open a message from more likely from a company on your email? And you know it's it's spam or whatever or a promotion. So you're not even going to get into it and open it. Or there's a WhatsApp message and you might be thinking, oh, it might be a friend, blah, 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 blah. Like, of course, you're going to open that WhatsApp message because you don't expect it to be a brand or a newsletter or whatever or, or a campaign sent out or a special discount, right? So if you're like, oh, well, I'm on WhatsApp, I can be on the top of the mind of the customer. In my opinion, they're way more likely to purchase. But again, it's not either or, but it's about how can I combine both? And, and not only both, but how can I include SMS marketing and a loyalty program into that as well? And maybe even a community where I can have product drops on a monthly basis where I'm like, hey, we're launching a new flavor. Hey, we're launching a new color. Hey, we're launching a new variation. Hey, we're launching a new size or whatever it is. No, that's so smart too. And I guess, yeah, the way I actually thought about it and then when I when you were talking about it was choosing one or the other. But yeah, you've made a great point. It should be a mix of everything, meaning you should have a good spread without doing it too thinly so that you actually target people in different ways. And I guess too, I was thinking like, I would definitely open a WhatsApp message even before like an SMS marketing push because you can also see like what the message is going to say. So I pretty much ignore it every time. But WhatsApp, actually, I'd probably be intrigued by the fact that I was being reached out to on WhatsApp because I've never been reached out to on WhatsApp before. So I'd probably actually be interested in that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's always dependent on the geo, right? Because in the US, like everyone is using iMessage or most of the people, right? And like, if, I feel like if, if you're talking to people, you're not, oh, like, what's your number? But like, hey, what's your Snapchat? Because I feel like that's way more present in the US. Germany, it's like like Instagram or like WhatsApp, right? So, I mean, there's always there's always differences between the geos. But I mean, it's probably worth to to try in the US. I'm, I'm actually super curious how it would perform. So if anyone has a brand out there, which is in the US, and, and tries WhatsApp marketing, let me know how it goes. Someone called Gemstat. <laughs> no, that's really interesting. And I guess actually, just out of curiosity, so... We're just talking about the different geographies and how you obviously market in different ways. Do you have any clients or I guess, have you worked with anyone or seen any examples, I guess, of people who have done brands where they're targeting different, like multiple different countries and have to figure out a strategy for both the ad buying and the retention side for multiple different countries? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're working with that a lot, actually, especially the bigger clients. Because like, think about it this way. If you have a country with, let's say, such as Germany, 83 million people, probably more by now, let's say 85 million people by now. 
how do you scale? Because you're, I'm not saying you're limited, but how do you accelerate that growth even further, right? Because you're only getting so far with with more creatives, with more emails, with uh, more <laughs> WhatsApp messages and whatnot. So of course, the the next thing you know is they're going to open a new market, a market that is probably within the EU because the logistics are going to be way easier because there might be a 3PL that they have within Germany that is probably open in, in France as well, or the shipping costs are just so much cheaper shipping it from Germany to France than as opposed to shipping it from Germany to the US, of course. But yeah, we're we're looking at that a lot. And and like the most solution that the people have is Shopify Plus, because they can plug and play all of the all of the stores that they have with the different domain endings. And then they're either they're translating it by themselves or they have an app like Langify or something, which translates everything automatically and then you can edit it and all that kind of stuff. And then if you think about different countries, what's super important is for different countries, you need different payment processors. If you're in Sweden, Klarna's from Sweden, right? So 95% of the people are going to buy with Klarna. And chances are, if you, if you don't have Klarna, if you don't have access to Klarna, you're not going to be profitable in Sweden. So it doesn't make sense to open a, a Swedish market. Does it make sense to open a store in Sweden if I don't have access to Klarna? Well, probably not. What if I only have access to credit card and PayPal? Well, open US if you don't already have, have that, right? Maybe open Australia, open, well, in Germany, it's a lot of a lot of Klarna as well. But France, for example, a lot of credit cards and PayPal. And this is like how they solve it. They have translators, they have proofreaders, sometimes in-house, sometimes agencies. Sometimes they have media buyers that are from France and then they have to proofread kind of like as an additional task because it's not like something that pops up over and over and over again. But like, yeah, mostly it's, it's actually the apps and then they have proofreaders to kind of like solve that problem. I'm always curious now because I feel like even after COVID, obviously, obviously companies were very international before COVID, but I feel like even smaller companies are getting a bigger or a better chance at being more international now because we're all thinking about this fact that there's so many different ways to reach different parts of the world without even having to leave our home. So it's interesting to know like how marketing strategies get affected by that, how ad buying gets affected by that, all that kind of stuff. Because even actually let's say between the US and Canada. So I'm from Canada. And when I'm on different sites, like I see a US site and then I switch to the Canadian site, so much changes about it, even though you think that the demographic is pretty much the same in terms of what they're doing. So I, even the ads that I'm seeing for, let's say like a shoe company or something like that, they change actually quite drastically. Like it's, it's pretty interesting to me. Like I'm wondering why it changes so much, even though the US customer and the Canadian customer is pretty similar in terms of what I'm buying of like shoes and jewelry and this and that. So it's interesting to know how that stuff changes across geographies. I haven't heard about that a lot from like, if we're talking about the US and Canada, but for taking the US and Germany, for example, there's a huge shift in consumer psychology. I mean, the, the fundamentals are the same potato, potato, right? But in the US, you can be way more aggressive. You can use way more red colors you can be way more scammy, so to say, right? Yep. Whereas in Germany, people <laughs> Be more serious. You have way more complaints with customers. So you need to be careful what you're claiming, what you're saying. GDPR. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even that. There's like lawyers in Germany, and that's like super crazy. There's lawyers in Germany who specialize, and this is like their their really? their job day in day out. Yeah, they're just looking for websites, and if you don't have the double opt-in in Germany or in, or in Europe, then they're sending you a legal letter, and then you have to pay a fine. Like this is how advertising in Germany is. It's like things are intense over there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you do e-com in Germany and you haven't been sued or you haven't gotten a few letters from the police, then like you're not <laughs> safe. Like all of my friends have that. 
And uh, we're like, oh, yeah, I just got another lawsuit by like this angry customer just because like a package was late like one day or something. And it clearly states in the shipping policies and everything how long it takes. And then you have emails being sent out. Hey, it takes this long. So, yeah, like Germany is a crazy market. So having long shipping times in Germany is something that I do not suggest. The logistics need to be absolutely flawless yeah. from what I understand. Yeah, not only logistics, but also the well transparency and the communication, all that kind of stuff. What I think is really cool about what you do is that you get to work with even just everything you've been saying right now is it spans across different countries, different sizes of companies, meaning bootstrappers, VC, different industries. Obviously, it's D to C, but there's so much that falls under that. I feel like you just get to see a whole breadth of experience. And I'm sure you probably take like unconventional strategies from one industry and apply to the other because you see things that work and you're able to see the differences in them. But I think that's really cool. Like you get to see such a a range of things as you work in this space. Yeah, I feel like this is also part of my success because I'm seeing what all these big players do and I get to see like some things within their team and, and how they structure it. not only the company, but also like the media buying teams and, and how the workflows are, how their SOPs are structured. So I'm like, man, like this is smart. I haven't thought about it this way, right? So I'll just implement it to my own team and, and like do learnings and get paid for it, kind of. <laughs> Love it. That's awesome. Very enterprising. That's what I'm all about. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was really interesting. Very insightful things because one thing that I'm really trying to focus on with this show as well is getting different perspectives on the same thing, right? So it's all about, yes, we're talking about retention, but everyone has a different set of experiences and skill set. And you bring a very unique perspective to it because we haven't really taken this ad buying approach to it yet. So thanks for sharing all that insight on it because it's something that's so important. It's something that's so necessary, but I feel like people are either thinking one or the other and never thinking together. It's there's so many different pieces of information and advice out there. So you brought a really interesting perspective to the whole thing, which was awesome. But typically like how I like to end the show is by asking just one piece of like hypothetical advice, whether marketing or life. And that's, is there a piece of marketing or life advice that someone shared with you once that has always stayed with you? And take your time. You got that. <laughs> Probably never put all of your eggs into one basket. Focus is key. Right. And in order to succeed, you need to focus. It doesn't make sense to focus on 10 things at a time. Right. And it was the same with me with media buying platforms. I started off with Google ads and then I was like, man, I'm kind of good at this. I know what I'm doing. So might as well venture out into other platforms because let's say you're only running Facebook ads and your page is getting restricted or your profile is getting banned or your feedback score is way too low and uh, everything is, is completely destroyed. Like what are you going to do? Right. So in my opinion, business is a lot of problem solving, like coming up with new ways on, on how to solve things. Not necessarily new ways, but just making sure that whenever there is an issue, you're prepared for it and you can deviate onto something else and not lose all of your revenue, essentially. So probably one advice to brands that I give out there is don't only focus on, on one marketing channel, especially in 2022, 2023. Um, it's super important to diversify traffic channels, especially if you have creatives that you are, let's say you're only running TikTok ads, might as well take these creatives and run them on Snapchat or run them on Instagram Reels only or even run them on Facebook because we've seen it working for us. We've seen it working for clients. I've seen it working for friends. And I think diversification is super important. So yeah, never put all of your eggs into one basket. I like that because it actually applies to life and your work. So... <laughs> Two birds, one stone. Look at you go. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was so lovely to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Retain the Customer Retention Podcast is brought to you by Gameball. To find out how you can turn visitors and occasional buyers into loyal, lifetime customers, head to Gameball.co. Make sure to subscribe to Retain the Customer Retention Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next time.